Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast from the streets of Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, I am about 12 hours away from heading into the mountains uh, with my friend Luke Oppenheimer, who has been on this podcast before. Uh, it's actually a podcast that is often cited in emails talking about um, previous guests, and you will definitely be hearing a podcast from us. While we are up in the mountains, he is finishing a, f a photography project that he has been working on for the last five years and is showing at an art gallery in New York at the end of May, and I am uh, filming a short profile piece on him um, all about this kind of journey and taking these last few pictures uh, in collaboration with uh, Swarovski Optic, actually. So that is where I am headed, but just before I head into the mountains, I'm going to press send on the latest podcast, which is a conversation with my very dear friend, Sam Thompson, uh, up at his home in the Highlands of Scotland, where we talk about all, all manner of things, but um, a lot about deer and the state of deer in Scotland and what that future looks like. Uh, as always, an incredibly entertaining conversation. Uh, and so I will hold you up no further other than to thank this week's top tier patrons who include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, James Marchington, South Esher, the, the, the whole team at South Esher Stalking, Dick Ekstrom and Mark Zabrowski uh, of Rushbrook Knives, Leslie Cumming, and the team at Gilly UK Clothing. Professional face on Mark, so you should tell. Mr. Thompson, welcome back to the Into the Wilderness podcast. The most requested and most present guest since the beginning of this this podcast. Is that right? Who started with my brother? Yeah. Yeah, we've done three. We just looked. Oh, was it only? Was it three? I think it's only three we've done. Oh, I thought it was more. I think. But, we've but to be three. fair, most of those shows were about three hours long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're sitting here in Sam's house. Up in the Highlands, north of Inverness, it is January 2024. January the 7th, to be precise. Yeah, I've done three. The first one was in 2018, 2019, and 2022. <laughs> Amazing. So I'm going to adjust that mic just slightly because I think it's going to rub on your uh, gilet. Ah, yes. Let's do that. Although this is a New Zealand gilet, so maybe it's a gillet. A <laughs> gillet. Yeah. <laughs> um... How's your season been, Sam? Mm. Uh, should we have like, well, let's have a nice practical conversation before we have a miserable conversation. Um, the actual stalking season we had this year was... was yeah, that's what I meant. I, yeah, I was, try, I was yeah, trying yeah, to start yeah. with something yeah, positive. Let's not do some politics. <laughs> um, we are going to do some politics it was on the show. Actually, it was a really interesting season because we had we had a really good stag season. I was really pleased. We shot 48 stags, which was great. I wanted to shoot 50. Um, we shot 48 stags. We had, we had quite challenging weather in terms of, so one of the really interesting things that I've noticed in the last probably half a dozen years is the, uh, the, the increased in east wind. We've had quite a um, lot of east wind this year. There's been an insane amount of east wind it's here It's very good for wildfowling out of the is basin, oh, out right. of the basin in Montrose. Oh. Yeah. And you didn't get it very often. Right. Whereas now all the ducks turn up all the time. Yeah. Yeah. What well, so what we're finding is that the deer are um oh, the deer are adapting to it slowly. I they, they still don't settle in it in the same way, I don't think. But um yeah, we managed forty eight stags with an 
pretty mixed season of wind. I mean, we had nearly, we must have had nearly three weeks of east wind at Stags, which is an awful lot for us. And for, for those people who maybe not so familiar with wind and weather patterns affecting where deer are going to appear at a certain time of year, just roughly explain why that would impact their movement and where they are, particularly think, at that time of year. I actually think you can, uh, I think wind and weather improvement, in fact, if you speak to fishermen, wind direction has a massive effect on salmon in a river system. Now what? Like, they're in a river. They can't feel the wind. How weird is that? But anyway, um, uh, yeah, so deer deer rely on uh, red deer uh, in our sort of environment, certainly, rely on a a hefted knowledge, in a lot of cases, of their um, landscape. I always describe it to people a bit like when you're a child and you had... Um, and you were allowed to like play out by yourself. There was like degrees of of that like landscape that was around you as a, as a small child. There was um, ever increasing, uh, generally to a point, um, areas in which like you played. So there was like your back garden, which was like your real. That was like your your territory, and you could have found safe your, haven. Yeah, 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 you could have found your way around that in the dark, literally. Um, and then there was kind of like the next big you know, the next bit of, of ground that you kind of were allowed out to play on and that maybe went to like a big tree or something like that and you had that period of your life where like beyond the big tree was a bit of a mystery. And then at it's some like being in Lord of the Rings, <laughs> beyond yeah, the yeah, shire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then at some point I don't know, maybe this is just me, but at some point you were like old enough and responsible enough to kinda of like go where you like. Mm -hmm. But ultimately you probably found everything you needed in terms of where you wanted to play, like roughly not very far from that big tree. So you end up with this kind of like a territory which is how Red Deer works. They have a territory, uh, and this is disputed, and, but this is what I think. They have a, a kind of a territory, which is almost like their back garden, which is like, that's generally where they'll occupy in the winter and in bad weather because they know they can get shelter. Um, and then they have that range, which is kind of like the, the, the deer equivalent of the child and the big tree or maybe the road or the big dry stone wall or whatever that kind of, that that next bit, which you know reasonably well and you can, you know, you can look after yourself and, and you're not that scared of, but then beyond that, it's kind of like the big wide world that you don't know. Um, and I think that's, I think that's how our deer work um, uh, in Scotland. I mean, it, it's so changeable. I was reading a book uh, there recently, um, uh, a really old book by the old Duke of Portland who had the, uh, uh, what we call the Welbeck Estates. Uh, which is like Langwell, Berradale, and Braemore, which are up on the in the far northeast of Scotland. Uh, and he had that from pretty much its inception of a deer forest, from when it was a forested, is the term we used. Um, so they cleared the sheep. Uh, in some cases, they cleared the people. I don't actually think he did, because I don't think there was anybody there. But, um, you know, th th they basically were like, right, okay, this, however many acres of land, that's going to be a deer forest now. And th there's a, a, a really quite detailed account of a stag that was shot there that was also seen in a number of other locations in Scotland that season. It was a three-horn stag. So it was, it was, it was a 10-point really three-horn stag. It was quite unique. And it had been missed on an estate so that's like for, for, for you and people that know the north of scotland uh, that's not very far from a place called helmsdale which is like quite far up quite far northeast uh that stag was also missed on the dundonnell forest which is just south of Ullapool. so you're looking at a deer that's traveled 
a phenomenal distance. You know, that stag in that season to be missed in one place and then killed in that other place. And photographs were sent to the people that missed the stag and they confirmed it was the same stag. Uh, and that, you know, maybe there was just less deer in the landscape, but at that point in their history, they were very transient. Um, and now we, we probably don't see that level of travel, but I do think that deer travel more than people think which is a very long-winded way to say that the reason an east wind matters is because they have to move into different places to get cover from it. Because mm -hmm. um, uh, they're always optimizing for feed and shelter. All, yeah, feed, shelter, and being left alone. That, that's that's all that deer really look for. Um, so, yeah, they, they you might find that... And, and also in an east wind, I think probably the biggest impact isn't that they'll settle in different places. It's the fact that they don't settle very well because generally east winds come with like a bit of high pressure and they're generally quite light. Or in the winter, they're really cold and they come with loads of snow, which again, changes. But in, in the stag season this year, you know, our east winds were generally quite light. It was generally quite warm. And so the deer was, would, would pick somewhere that had a bit of shelter from that wind, but they wouldn't settle properly like they would in a good steadily southwesterly or a westerly wind. So the stalking can be really challenging. Um and it can make it really it can make it really hard to to deliver coals because, you know, if the deer aren't in uh you know, if the deer are in different places, it's not that you can't stalk them, but it's that a lot of your infrastructure in terms of where you can get a deer out and where you can get a horse or a machine to, um, that uh that is affected by the fact that deer aren't in those kind of like, you know, here, uh, in, a, in a normal wind day in the stag season, I know that there'll be stags holding on the Wallet Ridge. And this is my third season here. This is the first time that we haven't really shot any stags of any number off that area at all because they just weren't there. Um, so it just it just changes. You just it, it means that you have to be flexible. It means that you can't um, you can't kind of rely on just going to those same places that perhaps people go to, regardless, because you don't need to really think too much about where the deer will be because you know your wind is generally the same a season like this when the wind's all over the place you've just gotta you've got to be all over the place you've got to move to that but you is, had a busy year and people yeah. wanting to come wanting to oh, participate yeah. booking weeks M massive i think um you know we still we're, we're oh yeah we i don't know if anywhere's a traditional deer forest anymore um but we're you know we're, we're we let with the lodge we try and start with ponies that was again so that because we had these east winds and such changeable winds we really struggled to use the horses this year um because we don't trailer the horses out they walk out from home um so you've kind of got to like pre-plan where you're going to put your horse because the horse has got to get there in advance of you because it takes them a long time to get out uh and we we just struggled to to match the planning up with where we ended up in a day um but yeah we're, because we're quite traditional there's quite a demand uh for that kind of stalking it seems and there's a lot of estates going away from that kind of stalking well with ponies well, just traditional, you know, letting traditional oh, stag okay. stalking. And so, like, a, like it w was done historically, letting the whole week with a lodge. Yeah, yeah. And, all the and, and, and just, I think, also, just full stop. There are less people letting high quality hill stalking nowadays because there's less, uh, there's less, there's less estates doing it because more estates. And this is us back on that bloody politics after saying we weren't going to do it two minutes ago. But um, you know, there's just there's just so much change, and there's so many estates that even five years ago. We're letting you know we're shooting fifty stags and letting them to guests and shooting the majority of them with guests. A lot of those places now are reducing deer densities and changing uh, management objectives, and and therefore they're not letting. So, um, are you seeing a shift in the clientele, like where they're from, the kind of clientele it is, how they got into it? Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't yeah, necessarily I mean so. like in the last three years here, but I just mean no, no, in no. Your, over yeah, your career I, I so def- far. I, I think, yeah, I think there's a massive, I actually think there's always been, and I, you know, I haven't been doing it for 50 years, so I'm probably not the man to comment, but um, I think there's def- there's there's never been, there's never been a lack of ladies going stalking. There's always been ladies stalking. I don't think it's actually been as sexist in its demographic as say game shooting has been i think game shooting was much more male dominated i think there's something in the fact that generally whole family groups will come stalking that quite often you know because it's multiple days it's a whole yeah, trip yeah away. It, it's a holiday and there's generally a bit of fishing and there might be a bit of shooting and there's some holidaying you know people go rowing boats around going hill walking whatever there's there's always been um it's always been i think perhaps more accessible to uh you know that very traditional kind of like daughters, wives, uh, daughters, wives, girlfriends, sisters, you know, rather than just, well, I'm going shooting on a Saturday and I'll be back Saturday evening or Sunday morning or something like that. And I'm going to go and shoot pheasants with my friends Uh, because you're away for a week. Generally there's that, but I, I, I'd say it's maybe not a 50, 50 mix with us now, but I, I certainly 30 to 30, 30 to 30 plus percent of our clientele will be ladies um, uh, and the age demographic is massively varied. Uh, do you think it's got younger, or not? Yeah, but I think I may be biased because I think young people maybe like stalking with, with young you. People, <laughs> yeah. So I maybe. think I maybe do get younger guests. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot. There's yeah. There's there's a really good interest in from from the young people in in coming stalking, and that's a mixture as well of people whose families have always stalked. Um. And people who have got into it from, um, uh, people have got into it from, uh, like you know, watching Meat Eater or listening to your podcast or you know all these other, um, uh, all these other kind of like avenues that we now have that we you know Instagram all that kind of stuff that. Even lots, lots of other ways well, to, even, know, even, to find out about yeah, it. Even, even it. when you and I first did a podcast in 2018, mm-hmm. six years ago, even then there wasn't that. I don't think there was that. Uh, so many uh, like avenues. There wasn't the same level of high quality media about it and things like that that would get people from just totally different backgrounds with no family experience or friend group experience to to go to go hunting. Probably the same everywhere, I'd guess. The the like, the, oh, we've probably talked about this, but like you know, meat eater and that kind of stuff just had a huge impact. Yeah, um, because it has become more mainstream. Yeah. And I think interestingly, that's probably had an impact even in the in the even in the old school in inverted commas of of guests and people. What well, change it of mindsets? And just um, just you know, immediate family members. You know, you maybe had someone that came stalking. You know, by himself two or three years ago by themselves two or three years ago whereas now um, there's interest because it's kind of cool like their children are probably more interested because it's not necessarily just exactly what their parents did it could also be this other thing that might lead to them going and shooting a moose or something in a, in a tent in Alaska or whatever they want to do so uh, yeah I think it is changing and I think the, the other thing that can't be um, underestimated is just the you know there's there's still just as much international interest i think in coming to scotland it's maybe changed a little bit since we uh since it became a lot harder to export trophies i think there's been a bit of a i've seen less interest from the typical 
North European, so like the Germanic, yeah. the Scandinavian, the Germanic, uh, the you know that those countries that they're, they're probably maybe because it was so Russia. easy pre Brexit. To yeah, do. but I think and I think it's important for you know most of those people that are coming over stag stalking. It's important that they take their antlers away, and yeah. I think a lot of those people now aren't aren't that bothered about coming here because they can much easier take their antlers back from a different place. Mm. But um, for the Americans, for example, it's, it's that difficulty hasn't changed. It's always been the same. Uh, or has it? Uh, I, I actually don't know. I, I, I think we've always had to have vet inspections. I think we have. I yeah. wouldn't be. Yeah, I wouldn't don't think. Me. And I think ultimately as well, if you're coming from, you know, we used to have German guys, uh, especially in Scandinavia, that came every year. So it wasn't like a very high cost, uh, not once in a lifetime perhaps, but, you know, uh, if you're coming from America anyway, the cost is is significant. So a more incre- an increased cost in getting your trophy home probably it's matters less. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, and I and and also it's interesting actually this year. So obviously there's and we maybe talked about this before, but there's been because of the wild boar population expansion in Europe. Um, there's suddenly been like quite an increase. I think a, a Maybe not a move away, but certainly if I listen to some of the guests I speak to, uh, there's a change in the hunting style. You know, the the big dri- the big driven boar hunts now in Germany are less. You know, you're not shooting the same big numbers. They're more of a kind of they're still going on, but it's as much about the social as it is about the shooting because just the amount of there is a lack of game because of the amount of people that are hunting with night vision and thermal. Uh, in high in high stands, and also, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of German hunters in certain areas of Germany have uh, big problems with wolf populations and the impact that's have. But I, most people, from what I hear, the, most of the impact seems to have come from uh, the the hunting. So technology community. changes, yeah, yeah. Community the wanting to do that more yeah. than well, the fact that they can come home, you know, they can suddenly go hunting three or four times a week, or other once every two weeks. Because they can go home and they can go and sit in a high, you know, put the kids to bed, have their supper, and go and sit in a high seat for two hours and shoot a pig. Yeah. And they couldn't do that before the thermal. Because there was no, or not that I'm aware of, and I'm not an expert, but there wasn't like a great lamping culture there. I think it was actually illegal. Yeah, but they've legalized. And I know speaking to a Finnish guy that they... They had a big whitetail problem, so they they opened... You forget that there's whitetail in Finland. yeah, Yeah, they opened night vision and thermal in Finland and suddenly like 90% of white tail were getting shot which getting shot in the dark mm. uh, and well. they did that for a period of time and they closed it again because they, you know they've reduced that population and it's kind of fine okay. I think in Germany we had certainly I had this conversation twice this season with guests different guests um, from different areas of Germany that the, the boar population is now much reduced okay. and is not as the, the driven hunting suddenly not such a big thing Mm. You do need a good population of animals, whatever it is that you're driving, to make driving work. Yeah. Otherwise, <coughs> uh, excuse me. Otherwise, it's very dull. <laughs> or you do what the Scandies do, and you have like one dog, or a, or, a, or a very small number and a yeah. different type of driven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you eat a lot of sausages yeah. sat on a little folding rucksack stool. <laughs> yeah, a there's a lot of sitting around looking at nothing. Yeah, waiting. <laughs> very little being happening. Cold. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. But I th- yeah, so I think that's quite interesting. Um, I mean, we're also seeing boar expansion here. Maybe maybe that's something we could talk about before we get into the more depressing politics of yeah. here. 
Yeah, I find, so that's really interesting. So our next door neighbour here shot like two pigs this season, which is, I think, quite cool. I have a really good friend who is a uh, forestry commissioner in the forest of Dean Dan Hoover. Oh, yeah. And I'm just And like, that's well known for pigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've had a lot there and he had a lot to do with them. And um, like, I've had that chat with him a couple of times like, oh, the piggies are close. That's exciting. And he's like, it's not exciting. It's very bad. You don't want them. They're terrible. Uh, <laughs> um and I have no experience with them at all, but I think, um, yeah, funny enough, all the politics that we keep putting off talking about, but we'll end up talking about. I was having that chat with a couple of people uh, just recently, and both of them from very different backgrounds both said, well, you know, maybe we've got 10 years of, of all this stuff about deer, but maybe we've got 20, but in the next, in the near future, it's it's going to become a massive wild boar issue, and the deer will be a secondary influence. Yeah. Um, People won't be as bothered about them because the once population. they see how destructive those yeah. guys are. And so, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know about it, but it's really interesting. Uh, someone was telling me that um, there's like eight thousand boar in the Great Glen now. It's as many as that. So they 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 oh. get. I mean, how the hell do they know? But, yeah, I don't. But know. Someone I've was, seen a lot there. Someone was yeah. guess. Someone was saying there's either eight thousand deer in the Great Glen, or there's eight. Sorry, eight thousand pigs in the Great Glen, or there's eight thousand pigs in Scotland. There was eight thousand was a number that was put out. Okay, and you can run some like really quite simple maths based on how they breed, so that you can see that in twenty years there'd be two hundred thousand. Okay, like the yeah. we're getting to a point where the population is big enough and viable enough that the where explosion will go. suddenly go wump. Which yeah. I think is what happened in Germany maybe ten years ago, or eight years ago. When well, and then they had swine flu and it crashed. Yeah, and then it it got really high again, didn't it? Yeah. I think there was was the post swine flu and it climbed up. I can't remember. I remember uh, that season that so like twenty seventeen season that I met you. Um, that season I remember talking to some to a lot. We had a lot of German guests there, and um, they were all talking about the really high densities of and the fact that they all thought that night vision and thermal might be the way to do it um a lot of them were i don't, I don't know if that, i think the french got quite into archery and like crossbow hunting them and stuff because it was silent so that you weren't spooking them all away from the feeders and yeah it would be an interesting thing there's so, uh, there's a lady's just written a book i think it's a lady's just written a book about uh, wild boar in britain called uh, i saw it advertised i think it's called uprooted or something like that uh, and I'm I I've pre-ordered that on Amazon, or maybe I've ordered that on Amazon. I'm not really sure, but I'm quite keen to read that and see what the see what the the angle is. Do you think that there's been enough preparation for what is coming with it, or do you think it's like oh, it's not really that much of an issue now? Let's deal with it tomorrow. In terms of the people who make these regulations, I an understanding of it. I think it will be very like we we're talking about earlier. I think it will be very like the seeker. Um, uh, situation that we're in now in that um, it's not really there's not there's not resource put into research there's not resources enough put into researching it it's understated and it builds quietly uh, and suddenly becomes a, a fairly colossal issue at some point I know so at a deer meeting um, in uh, early 2023, maybe like our spring meeting in 2023, the regional deer management group, uh, we have meetings. And I was speaking to the government chappy that was there and his angle was, uh, A, that we're calling them feral pigs in Scotland. We're not calling them wild boar. It's fer that we're referring to them as feral pigs. 
and that was that was one of those things that was made very clear for obviously some reason that I'm ignorant to, um, and that they are now mapping sightings. So there's like an online um, uh, service, and you can go on and you can log that you've seen or shot or whatever a wild boar. Um, so they obviously are trying to make some headway into dealing with the issue, but I think Nature Scott, uh, which used to be Scottish National Heritage, Natural Heritage, um, I think they're just so busy and under-resourced anyway. I think, I'm sure there's lots of people that would love to, to research boar and try and, you know, anticipate, plan, but I just don't think there's the resources or the people there to do it. Um, mm. So you mentioned Seeker. Seeker, deer species, one of the six that we have in the UK. Um, give us a bit of background on that and why why you bring that up as a as a sort of a parallel example that yeah. has happened in the past and as a, continues as a to happen. a bad example. Yeah. That's funny. So Seeker deer have been in, uh, and this is fag packety stuff, so it might be wrong, and I'm so, sure some very clever people will email you and fervently <laughs> tell you. That's, I, I will forward it right on to you and you yeah. can respond to them. Um, I think it was uh, around 1900, um, I think I think it was in the late 19th century that Seeker deer were brought from Asia, where they're native to, uh, to the United Kingdom, as well as a, a great number of other places across the world as an ornamental deer species. Uh, and for our purposes in Scotland, we're really talking about the Japanese seeker deer. There's also a Manchurian seeker deer. I think there's a, a Shiska. There's like a Chinese seeker deer from uh, somewhere called like Shiska region or something like that. There's a few. There's a few different seeker species, but ultimately up here. And up here, I mean, there's a, a, a very strong seeker population throughout the west coast of Scotland. Uh, the Monlea Mountains have uh, seeker deer um, uh, as well. They're in the borders. There's quite a strong population that escaped Tweed from Hoyk. Valley. Yeah, yeah, Hoyk Botanic Garden. <laughs> Is that I where think they came Hoyk from? they came from originally. Uh, and in the north, Rose Hall uh, near Leg had a captive population that have been out for a long time. Mm -hmm. And they've expanded all the way, you know, right up to, to Big House on the north coast of Scotland, um, through Strathoical, Strathcarran, um, you know, all the way through East and West Ross, the, there's now a seeker deer present. Um, so in a lot of Scotland. In a lot of Scotland. and None by me yet, I don't think. Uh, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, so the Cairngorms is this interesting, the, the Cairngorms National Park, which you're at the bottom of, people will say there's no seeker in the Cairngorms, but there definitely is, and there's definitely seeker close by. Um, Do you think that's more, is that more northern side? Yeah, so like yeah. Newton Moor. Yep. Uh, so like uh, Newton Moor, King Goosey, there's, there's been seeker there for a long time, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure they're pushing into Speyside. Um, it will be interesting to see whether they, uh, whether they go, how they would get into say D side and then the Angus Glens. I don't know how that would so work. I wonder if we'll eventually get them from the north then rather than the south. They certainly aren't afraid of height. I've shot Seeker at 800 meters above sea level, very, very far away from a tree. And they're mm -hmm. a forest species apparently, but they are really adaptable. I was told recently, um, that they are the single most Im successful invasive species on the planet at present. And there is expanding populations of them on every continent apart from Antarctica. 
uh, which is that would be impressive. It's impressive, and <laughs> yeah, no, it would be impressive no, in Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> against yeah, the penguins, <laughs> a very a very chilly Zikadir. Yeah. Well, but there, there, there's a th- thing that. Um, yeah, there's a thing in Japan that so that in Japan they're like really heavily protected mm. in a lot of places. There's not a lot of hunting of them, but there is a there was a really interesting thing on Nat Geo a couple of years ago. I must have sent you this. I don't think you have. Um, and they were like they weren't hybridizing with monkeys, but they were trying hard. Well, the seeker were. Yeah. So female seeker deer and male monkeys, and just go and Google it. Just like monkey seeker deer National That's Geographic. That's bizarre. Like that. It was some very interesting film footage. <laughs> Uh, yeah Um, Sam Thompson always lowering the tone (laughs) Um, but yeah so there's there's a real so they can hybridize with red deer Yeah. so that's the first thing so the big alarm that was the first time I was ever aware of Sika as a species when I was much younger was Mm -hmm. conversations this is down in Tweed Valley of the issue of them hybridizing yeah and that was Oh, I mean, and I, to be absolutely 90s. honest with you, I, yeah, the eighties. So in the in the eighties, the Red Deer Commission, which was the forerunner of the Deer Commission, which was the forerunner of S and H now Nature Scott or parts of it or whatever. Uh, the Red Deer Commission uh, became aware and alarmed of them, uh, and as early as the eighties, which is now forty years ago, um, the Red Deer Commission. Um, the Red Deer Commission said that we should, uh, I can't remember what the wording was, but they essentially said that they, they weren't welcome here and we should try very, very hard to get rid of them. Yeah. And that was in the 80s. Uh, and some people did try very hard. Uh, and some people, um, I think, made good headroads. But um, I've actually decided that the best thing for me to say about hybridization is that I don't really understand it because my understanding always was that... Um, where it had occurred in this country was in areas, especially Argyle, where because of forestry management reasons, red deer populations were pushed down to very low densities um, for, for tree growing because red deer are relatively easy to kill. Um, and the way that seeker deer spread is that the young male deer spread out and, and take territories and then the female deer co- follow. So these there was young, young young male seeker deer were spreading out into areas where there was no female seeker deer uh, and no or very few male red deer because of culling pressure. But because, you know, as early as then, you could um, you could shoot red deer all year round uh, for, for forestry protection purposes, male red deer all year round for forestry protection purposes. Um, you couldn't shoot female deer all year round so ultimately as in a lot of cases still is the case the majority of the cull was made up of male deer uh-huh. so you had a dormant almost um from a breeding point of view fairly dormant herd of, of red hinds that just didn't have access to red stags and male seeker deer arrived colonizing the area and went well huh, yeehaw. yeah absolutely will you stand for me oh you will because you're very desperate and i you know i'm a colonizing so they went and they colonized uh so we had almost sounds like human history yeah Yeah. uh so there was so there was hybridation occurred then and we sort of we uh, in fact it would be an amazing podcast someone like josephine pemberton Mm. would i'm sure be able to do a fantastic podcast and explain it in proper detail not like me um so hybridization happened then people got quite worried about it and started shooting Seeker very hard, and they started worried about it because we were concerned we would lose our yeah. native red yeah, deer yeah, yeah, as yeah. a species. Yeah, and yeah. forty years ago, we actually gave a shit about our native red deer, so that was an issue. Yeah. Um, and the Red Deer Commission, you know, were were pretty pretty concerned about that. I, I 
I've been told that they ran a service where you could submit um, lower jaw bones. Oh, to and test. they could genetically test them to see if there's any hybridization and, and this kind of stuff. Oh. And I was always under the um, impression that that was where hybridization occurred, was that y you had to have this kind of like imbalance in your yep. deer herd. And the so they were kind in. of forced into a position. Yeah. Um, and I've seen seeker deer running with red deer at various times in my career. And in various, you know, I've seen seeker hinds moving with seeker hinds. I've, uh, sorry, with red hinds. I've seen... Um, you know, them both grazing on similar areas. I've seen seeker stags running with red stags. I've seen seeker hinds running with red hinds. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, there's, there's certainly not, they don't struggle to share the, the same, same territory, territory okay. and ground. Um, but I've never, I've never seen a seeker hind holding red deer. Uh, now that's probably, seeker stag a, sorry, a seeker, a seeker stag holding red hinds or trying to and that's maybe because of uh you know where that's happening is maybe just in really thick forest maybe i've just not not been in the right place at the right time who knows um but i think i think i think hybridization is one of those things that we don't really understand a great deal about and if i'm honest i don't think we really understand a great deal about seeker deer at all there's not any great research that i'm aware of going on um you know the government line uh and I think rightly so, is that they're an invasive non-native and that they should be... Um, why, why would they have a season for them if they're an invasive species? They um, must be the only invasive species that actually has a season. I might be wrong in that, but... It's, uh, it, it would feel... Well, people say brown hares are invasive, don't they? Well, they've been kind of naturalized because yeah. that was so long ago. Yeah. It was the Romans uh, that so brought the brown The hair. logic behind giving them a season... Welfare, I'm assuming. Uh, uh, welfare, and I... I would probably go back, I would guess, to before it being a thing. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, you know, they were probably in parks or whatever they were. I, I don't know. Um, but that's, and obviously we've, 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 we've lost the male seeker deer season in 2023, yep. along with all our other male seasons. Um, but yeah, so this population has absolutely grown under the watchful eye of the government who were telling everybody to deal with it, but not really. There was never, there's never been a great pressure to deal with it from a nature Scott type level, I don't think. Not to the same level as we've seen things implemented in the past and, and no. currently with red deer. Yeah, absolutely not. And the focus, and this is my big, um, I mean, I don't, I don't even know, even if we were to do a two hour podcast today, whether we could get into the nuts and bolts of what's happening in the deer world at the moment. I don't think, I think you would have to do a series of podcasts which were well-structured and well-researched, and we all know that's not what I do. Um, uh, so I don't think we can, but but ultimately, you know, what we're seeing is a government that is incredibly driven to deal with uh, what they consider to be a deer problem. And their target of that is ultimately red deer. And I would say looking at, what's being put in front of us, they are predominantly focusing on red deer in that open range scenario. You know, nobody seems to be particularly driven to pick up with Forest and Land Scotland, what used to be the Forestry Commission, and talk to them about their deer management. Or, you know, there's no great drivers from the government to go into uh, agricultural Aberdeenshire. Uh, and, and deal with red deer. And really, well, or deal with red deer there. Oh, red deer, the red yeah. deer population there is, is expanding at a rate of knots. Um, but I would say that are, are, you could almost say that they are um, 
they are hiding from this, you know, this invasive non-native species, which is very much in plain sight. You know, Russia, Forest and Land Scotland in Russia have, their cull has changed significantly from mm. being virtually all red and roe deer to being, I wouldn't say it's all seeker deer, but I would say that seeker deer are, are a heady number of, of, the, of the annual cull. Huh. Uh, and there's certainly not, consultations around how should we deal with the the issue of seeker deer uh, as as anything separate to a, a bolt on to our our big deer problem that apparently is all red deer and people but that's a problem that's going to i would suggest going to exponentially increase as we increase forest cover uh, uh, and how are you going to manage them in forest and this you know this is so if we, let, let's we'll run a very simple but you know i think realistic situation in that we we all the whole way that our industry's going and our government's going there's going to be a uh, there's going to be a reduction in deer numbers in scotland um but, but, but particularly red deer numbers in scotland red deer in the open range i think are going to bear the brunt of that yeah because amusingly we have the best data about them we have the best management systems in place for those deer we have the best understanding of those deer uh, and we've decided that it's their fault uh, and it's the fault of people that want to have red deer in an open range scenario for deer stalking. Uh, and the mismanagement by those people has led us to the situation that we're in now where apparently we have a mass deer problem. And it's amazing when you start, um, you know, just talking to hillwalkers or reading comments on, you know, uh, applicable journalist pieces on the guardian or the times or whatever you know th the country is convinced and the scientific community uh in the most part or the environmental community let's say not the scientific community the environmental community is absolutely adamant that we have you know we have we have hordes of red deer doing untold damage to every piece of um native ecosystem in, in scotland uh and it's because of negligence on behalf of the deer management community it's because that the government's allowed them to do this and uh you know like all good things it, it's now turned into the fact that you know um deer are a big problem in us delivering our you know delivering on climate change and our climate change credentials are impacted by deer and in fact the the consultation that was released two days ago uh is the title is managing deer for climate and nature and you go, that is, you know, right. What the, what does that mean? I mean, you know, that's the stage we're at. So, um, yeah, deer, deer are going to, deer populations are going to reduce. And what I would say is that reducing red deer populations is not massively challenging in the most part, certainly not in an open range scenario. Uh, it's, been, it's been done countless times, uh, in some cases very successfully. Um, what I don't think, and we're, and we're ultimately doing this because we want to see an increase in woodland cover. And in a lot of cases, the vast majority of cases, we want to see an increase in uh, native scrub woodland cover. So birch woodland, fir trees, oak trees, you know, our native mixtures of, of forestry. And I think what I have been concerned about for a, for a good long time uh, is that we're going to, so we're going to reduce the deer population, which is going to allow, you know, in most cases to have successful, we're going to plant that woodland in most cases. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to grow this scrub woodland, which is going to be very thick. Mm -hmm. um, it's not going to have provision for 
It's not going to be space. It's, like, it's, 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 like not, it's not going to have fire breaks and things like yeah. that in a lot of cases. Because you're talking um, about a lot of natural regeneration, well, regeneration either from yeah. banks of existing stuff or yeah, I mean, there's yeah. seed banks that exist in a lot of those um, places anyway. Or even you know, even in a lot of ways that, that trees are being planted, we're not seeing provision for herbivore management in that. You know, if you can plant a whole field or a whole hillside, in a lot of cases it, it's being planted with minimal infrastructure for, for herbivore management going forward, which has long been I mean, Christ, you can read Ronnie Rose's book uh from like the early eighties. Yeah, and he it. was he was banging on the door of intelligent forest design. And I think intelligent forest design is just not something that exists in Scotland. What's that called again, that book? Something of nature? Uh, working with nature. Working with nature. Or working for nature. Yeah. Something like that. It's got a picture of a stag on the front. It does. Yeah, um, yeah you know, so we're going to grow this scrub woodland and uh, what's amusing is that what we're, what we're what we're putting in place is a perfect habitat for deer. And we're never going to get rid of the Particularly deer. perfect habitat for seeker. <laughs> well, and, and this is exactly it. What we're going to do is we're going to suppress a population, but we're never going to get rid of it. Um, and then we're going to create a, a phenomenal habitat for them. We're probably going to have, um, I would suggest in the future, a large degree of straight seeker or seeker hybrids that are going to thrive in that environment. And because... Um, because of how that woodland's being created, and in a lot of cases, you know, we see this a lot. I was speaking to a, a guy down in Cumbria um, who's, you know, involved in a lot of these woodland creations that they're doing down there, and a lot of that's tubed woodland. Okay. Um, so not fence, but just Not fence, tubes. But, but tubes. And we, you know, big storms a couple of weeks ago, and he said there's, you know, in, in one particular scheme that he's working on, there's been massive, you know, tubes have been blown down en masse. Uh and, you know, he said to the, you know, the, the forest manager, whoever it is that's in charge of this, that, you know, we really need to get them stood up to, to grow the trees. And the answer is that there isn't time, so it's not going to happen. Now, what that means is, although ironically, we, you know, those of us that have done a little bit of this and, you know, we, we all know that in woodland you need open areas to manage deer. Yeah what we're going to have, the open areas we're going to have in those in that environment is going to be a 20-foot circle or square or whatever shape you end up with uh, where all the tubes blow down and the trees won't grow. Yeah. But that isn't going to be any use of managing deer. What that's going to be is a, is a really amazing little glade. For feeding. For them to feed yeah. in. But you'll never be able to get into it and shoot them out of it because you know it's, it's too small an area. And it's not a ride system that you can stalk and manipulate and you know utilize. Uh, and you know, allow the deer to feed on areas so that you can stalk into them and shoot them. It's going to be these little pockets of open that ultimately mean that, on a large scale, there probably won't be the requirement for deer to um, deer to break cover. Mm -hmm. So we'll end up with a you know a um, probably non-native deer herd that are nocturnal because you know we've this year we've we've legalized or last year sorry i should say we've legalized night vision and thermal optics so they're going to be terrified of any sort you of still light. need to apply for a license for that. yeah so you still need a uh i think it's an 18-2 organ authorization to shoot at night but you then can use night vision and thermal uh and the majority of deer shot in forestry i would i would hazard a guess the majority is shot in the dark already with light so that's not a massive change um but it it will it is interesting um uh, you know 
so we're going to have these deer that are going to be not a native species, um, very intelligent, very good at evading people and pressure. Uh, and with this phenomenal habitat to do that in, because as soon as, you know, it'll be easy when the trees are two foot tall, but by the time the trees are 10 foot tall, you'll be able to see into it with a thermal drone, yes. Uh, in, maybe. in the thin bits. In the winter, um, maybe. But ultimately, from a deer stalking point of view, you're going to really struggle. and Even with thermal. Yeah, as, with, with, as we just saw the other day when we were playing yeah, with some yeah. thermal, yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you know it's, it's going to be very difficult to manage those deer. And the big um the the big the big driver for that i think is just going to be the scale of that environment and so you're going to end up with creating a perfect habitat for deer not to be managed but deer to thrive in um an invasive non-native species of deer that's incredibly successful that's um very hard to to manage and really uh, and at that point, you know, that's not that far down the road. We're not talking about this is going to be a 200-year problem. No, we're talking like 20, the, 30 Yeah, years. yeah, when those trees are 10 foot tall, we're going to be in, in serious trouble. And I think that's just, that's sadly, and then you add in wild boar to that mixture, feral pigs, what we're supposed to call them. That's like a whole other. So do you think we're going to have to see, I mean, it seems like, the you know, the march for afforestation and reductions in, in deer, large reductions, particularly in red deer numbers, is has already been happening and is continuing to happen and will continue to happen. It seems like that is where the momentum is. Do you think that one of the discussions that we should be having now to get ahead of it is how should um, hunting, which our management practices need to change? And by that question, I'm thinking in Europe or Scandinavia, where we're, which is often pointed to as we should be more like Europe, we should have more tree cover. And I've, covered how that maybe doesn't make sense in the Upland podcast series, but um, they don't hunt in the same way as us to manage that. There's a lot of, you You were talking about driven hunting earlier. <clears throat> there's a lot of driven hunting and that is not, I mean, there's a cultural component to it, but there's also just a practicality component to it. And I think when a lot of people think about driven hunting in Europe, they're, they're thinking about boar, but maybe don't realize that, yes, there are a lot of boar hunting, but a huge amount of deer driving as well happens there so i think there's a really there's two there's two really interesting things in this firstly i think that we're quite unique in that we are um our sort of stalking um uh, our recent stalking history especially if we if we forget about the highlands for a little while if we forget about um you know Red deer, open range, that kind of stuff. Like you say, wider across Britain, we're looking at more tree cover. Well, actually, deer management across Britain, I would say, has is, is not been, has not ever been something that government has been interested in to start with, really. Um, and there's certainly never been, there's never been, uh, you know, beyond, beyond the Forestry Commission uh, doing what they do in, in, the, in their holdings. There's not really... I wouldn't say there's massively effective deer management across lowland Britain. I don't think you could I don't think anybody could argue that we effectively manage deer in Britain hmm. in the most part, you know. Yeah. Well there's a lot of lowland areas and that's the mostly ma- done the by ma- recreational The majority of it, it's it's predominantly recreational hunting. It predominantly fits around um crop protection, agriculture, probably. crop protection, um you know, it it fits around other 
hunting, driven mm-hmm. driven shooting in a lot of cases. You know, you, a lot of people in England have, or well, certainly used to say, and probably still do say that, you know, oh, well, you know, I, I stalk on this bit, but um, I don't, I don't stalk there during the winter because it's the shooting season and the yeah, gamekeeper doesn't yeah. want me on shooting deer. So that's uh, really common in England. Yeah, 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 and and I think this is you know there's more money being put behind forestry in terms of grants and things like that. So those parts of our country are going to have to start taking this a lot more seriously. Mm. And I don't think they are. Um, and I don't think government's that bothered in Scotland because they've got this wonderful low hanging fruit and this massive stick to just beat the shit out of Highland deer stalking all day long um and they're not actually there like right okay let's let's you know let's look at upskilling the recreational stalking community or let's look at you know there's certainly no funding available no i mean there's the lowland deer network but really has that i don't think that's done anything i only know a couple of people involved with it uh one over in aberdeenshire and he's the first person to say that it's the most you know un um uh sort of uh uh it just doesn't work I can't think of the word I'm trying to say, but you know, it, it's yeah, it's it it just it it doesn't drive anything. They'll have meetings and people t- talk things through around, but there isn't that kind of. And you know, we're relatively new to it in the Highlands as well. Deer management groups have only really been going since the Second World War, but even so, that's long enough that we've made, in the most part, quite effective, um, you know, landscape scale deer management a thing. Um, and if you look at those other countries, like you say in Scandinavia, the government is far more involved in organizing not necessarily carrying out but organizing that deer and other herbivore management you know they're setting culls they're working with hunting clubs they're doing all these things and our government isn't bothered i mean i think england when england actually when the government when naturally whoever wakes up to this the realization that you know there is huge populations of fallow there are massive, yeah. you know, the, the very And that's wide, before talking about the little ones. That's yeah. the massively widespread mountain jack populations. You know, plus in some states, just expanding deer populations at large. Because you have, and I think ultimately, in a lot of cases, that's not because that's being stored recreationally and people don't have the skill set. I think actually in a lot of cases, it's because there isn't access to all of the deer range. Mm. So they have these they have these, the these sanctuaries yeah. where deer can escape to and it'll be exactly the same with pigs and you know again I my friend that worked in the forest of Dean you know he he just said in that environment you know working with high powered rifles alongside human access they talk Very about hard. a thing they talk about a thing called the forest fear huh. um you speak to Dan and Jacob about this yeah. like it's fascinating you get so used to second guessing yourself that someone is going to turn up that you just become ineffective at, at killing things because you're just like oh, i better not take that shot because oh you just don't know and so they'll pass up and that's not about not having safe backstop or anything it's no just- that's just because you know someone can turn up flying around a corner on an e-bike anywhere at any moment and there's people, you know, there's people in ghillie suits photographing deer. And yeah. there's all these things going on. Added to the fact, you know, certainly in the south of England, we have this very aggressive anti-hunting. It's not a lobby, but this this kind of community of, you know, cutting tires on Forest Commission Ranger pickups. Does that and happen a lot? I think it, it happens enough. Yeah. Um, and you know well, because people, they're killing deer, because they're killing deer. What, what, what and they're, a great they're irony! Because the they're probably the same activists that are on the climate change sure. marches, which is apparently why we're 
Killing all these Killing all deer. the deer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think ultimately, you know, and it's one of the interesting things, this most recent consultation that we've got in Scotland, the, the, the climate and nature, managing deer for climate and nature consultation. One of the things that talks about is shooting deer with shotguns. Um, now as I'm in actually, you should be able uh, to. As in making it, uh, so at the moment, I think in Scotland, you can only use a shotgun for, for humane dispatch of deer or for protecting Crops, crops yeah. ultimately because Which, it, that's been uh, the go yeah, for a long it, time since yeah. the 60s and it's yeah. because crofters might have had a shotgun and they could put some some double a or some ssg or whatever the hell you put in them and they could shoot some deer off silage parks perhaps um uh, now i think that's actually a good thing i think you know we're dealing with in aberdeenshire now it's not uncommon to see and, and probably other places as well that i'm not familiar with but you know anecdotally from friends you know the guys that are stalking there they're not seeing one or two roe deer they're seeing 15 or 20 roe deer in a field. Mm -hmm. They have herds of roe That's deer. That's like where I live. Yeah. 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 And, and you're I, not, I counted 30 in one night in and four fields. And you're not supposed to have herds of 30 roe deer because they're not a herding species. And I think 10 years ago, there wasn't herds of 30 roe deer. Um, and, you know, the, the best and safest way in a lot of cases, and this is the interesting thing in Scotland where we also, I think, you know, it's all well and good having conversations about things like, you know, how are we going to manage the deer? But what the conversation that they won't have is how do we manage public access? How do we, you know, it's not just about... Well, you're never going to rewind that in Scotland. Well, no, oh, yeah. but I think we could look at temporarily closing areas. You know, if we, during if, key times where can during management. something, and this again this links in with the Scandinavian chat. You know, if we're looking at well, how do we manage road in this woodland area where actually um, it does not suit, you know, rifle stalking or night shooting or the you know the standard tools in our tool. And there's going to be a lot of those places. Eventually. Yeah, if you go back, you know, if you go pre Second World War, how did people kill road in Britain? They did it with drives, and they shot them with shotguns. I, all right, they snared a lot as well. But, you know, driving road to guns was something that we did an awful lot of, and it worked very well. Um, it worked too well in some cases. Uh, and, and, you know, road deer were in trouble at various points in history. But, you know, that's, again, shooting deer with a shotgun is something that, done properly, can be very safe. It can be very humane, and it can be done with welfare at the forefront of the mind. And but that's going to require working with dogs, though. That's going to require working with dogs. Which leads into something else that's happened recently. <laughs> Which, yeah, so we've now got to use more than two dogs to uh, to hunt any mammal. You now need to apply for an individual license. But there is, interestingly, going back to that seeker conversation, and maybe the feral pig thing, is there isn't, you can apply for a license. It's not just for foxhounds for protecting, you know, um, endangered uh, ecosystems and, and species. It's also for, um, it can also be for invasive species. So what I am hoping is that we'll be, well, mink, yes, but what I'm hoping is that we'll be able to apply for um, a license to drive, uh, you know, non-native species out of areas so that we can shoot them or to put them into areas where we can shoot them. And, not, and I'm not talking about a driven deer shoot. I'm talking about moving deer, being able to push them out to a of gun. covered Moving areas. them out of cover so that they are shot probably stationary, probably with a rifle in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. But, that you know, as they do in Scandinavia, you're not always shooting a running animal. This isn't about making, like, a, you know, making driven boar hunting what we do. It's just, you know, if, if we want to be effective in actually delivering all this stuff that the government keep telling us we have to deliver, then we should be looking at those areas as much as we should be looking at the open hill. And... The reason they won't want to do that is because there's massive, they have no infrastructure for that. 
there's an infrastructure in place for them already to carry out a helicopter count, count many deer, and put people into a Section 7 or one of the new, uh, it's called a Deer Management Nature Restoration Order. That's what they've proposed. You know, they'll be able to put those in very easily, and they'll be able to push on the open range deer management system to, to drive those numbers down. And it's also, that's easily done because we have a reasonably good handle on how many deer we have in those environments. Um, whereas where you live, you know, lowland, rural really angles, not, no one really knows. And no one's making any effort to find out. Um, but the helicopter counts in the future are going to become very ineffective. I don't know. Well, the, well for, as soon as you get a certain level of cover... Yeah. They're going to be completely ineffective. Yeah. So there's a guy called Ben Harrower who is doing, uh, he's an ex Forestry Commission wildlife ranger manager, and he has some really sort of sexy, very expensive thermal drone technology. And he's doing some uh, counts of thermal drones. Um, and the other methodology that is proven to work well is the Strathcolly dung counting methodology of uh, deer usage of an area. But you've got to bear in mind... How do you sex them, though? Well, you don't. You're not even looking at a different... Even with measure. thermal, you can't... Oh, with the thermal, he can, yeah. He the can thermal's exactly... Yeah, but it doesn't work well in, like, a really dense, you know, mature commercial plantation. I don't no, think it's I don't think effective. you'll get through that canopy. Uh, but in Scrub Island, it will be effective to, to some degree. Yeah. Um, uh, what I think is interesting... So, so the other method is counting dung on transects. Uh, which, which has been is, done for a very long time. But, yeah, I mean, Dougie Campbell started doing that in uh, probably the 80s. Um and that is widely regarded as being accurate. The Forestry Commission have used that for their baselines for a long time, um, but it has a confidence value of forty percent plus or minus. Mm. So, I mean, it's you very useful for trends. I don't think it's that useful in my mind for absolute population numbers. But it will show you if something's going yeah, but up it, or it's, down. It's show, and it's showing you because usage, confidence. So. Confidence forty percent is like kind of pointless. Like, that's massive. <sighs> It is. That doesn't it, tell you whether you should do. If it's forty percent either side of something, doesn't tell you whether yeah. you should take action or not. But it's also it's much better than um, nothing. It's, it's much <laughs> better than old Tom telling you that there's ten roads. No, this there. is true. But as a base, as a as a trend, it'll show you. You know, it'll still show you yeah. trends. If which you is shoot useful. lots of them, there'll be less of them, so yeah. you do know you're winning. Whereas actually, I think I think so much ineffective deer management carried is carried out in in lowland and woodland scenarios because people don't understand how many deer they're trying to control in the first place. Yeah. So if you shoot a load of deer and you stop seeing them, people think that they've won, and yeah. in actual fact, you might not have done. You've probably <clears throat> changed their behaviour and push them into the nighttime or something. Push them into nocturnal behaviour. Push them into different areas of cover. Push them into utilising it differently. You potentially haven't got to the bottom of it, and also, you know, and this is the this is what I what makes me sad is that deer are you know we're, we're constantly seeing deer being you know deer are the problem, deer are the problem, and they are. But you know, we've also got protected mountain hares now. So if we want to establish forest cover, the relationship between blue hares and damage to upland forestry plantations is long recorded, and you sort of sit there going, so we've protected blue hares because that was a, a good point-scoring exercise from the greens against grouse moors. That's absolutely fine. But that goes against what we're doing with deer. Are and they going to be able to control them under some sort of licensing? I you can apply for, for a license for woodlands, I think. No, for oh, you can woodland, for woodlands? I believe so. It's not something I've had to do since no. it's been banned. So, um, <laughs> I am, yeah, I, I haven't worked anywhere with blue hares since before. The thing uh, that's crazy banned, about so. that is that if we're serious about protecting them, which has happened, 
because we're concerned about their population and range, then there shouldn't be forests being planted in places where they currently exist anyway, because they're not going to exist inside forest. No, because that's not where they live. Not once, it, not once it's properly established. You know, in the initial stages they will, but they'll soon be pushed out of that. Very, there's a lot of clashes in ideologies here. I think I think the Scottish government's just uh, in a. Uh, I think it's in a position where it, it has an agenda and the agenda has to, you know, we're looking at this latest consultation, you know, it's, it very clearly states this. So our dear management nature restoration order, that isn't going to, unlike the, so at the moment there's um, provision within the Deer Act for sections, uh, like section seven agreements. So the, the government getting involved with deer management on an, uh, on an area mm-hmm. basis because of damage to an important habitat. Now, yeah, this, where you have this, things forced upon you as the landowner. Well, you, you enter into a voluntary agreement with them to reduce the deer density to, to bring it in line with this because, you know, that's the right thing to do. Um, and, uh, you know, it can be demonstrated that the, that the deer are causing damage. Now, the new uh, DMNRO which we'll just call the, the new order. Um, <laughs> the new order. Which, yeah, the new order, which they've put forward as a proposal uh, on Friday. Um, that they're very clearly stating that there is no baseline uh, understanding of damage or impact is going to be required for that. So this is going to be put onto an area because Nature Scott believes there is an environmental basis to reduce it. There's no, without any evidence. But without any without evidence. Requiring yeah, any without evidence. any requiring any evidence. So we're now at a point where we've got a government that has essentially said, yeah, well, we don't need the science now. That's we've been pretty doing much what it. that says. We've been doing it with the science since then. And it hasn't fulfilled 90s, what we want. And we're not getting what we want. <laughs> so now, as well as the Section 7s that you need the science for and all the other stuff, where you know you have to carry out habitat impact assessment and you have to do these things, um, as well as that, we'll also have this, which we can just like so Just in case, yeah. we can basically do what we yeah, want. yeah. And I don't even think we're at the stage of carrots and sticks because uh, it's I, just I don't, a giant stick. There's just one stick, and it's already been inserted. <laughs> <laughs> that's how, that's sadly how it feels. You know, it's interesting. So another point of that is that there'll be funding available uh, to help with culling and fencing and cull planning and deer counting and um, habitat assessments. But you know. I have, and I think we should, you know, we should be habitat-led in our deer management. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't, and I don't think there is really anybody that we should be arguing that we should be, you know, uh, degrading habitats. I think there's two interesting things here, is that there is the, there is a belief that the only acceptable habitat now is trees. So if you've not got trees growing, then you're doing it wrong. And I've heard that stated to me by people before. Stalkers have said that to me before, and and it makes me really sad, because I think it shows a bit of a lack of... Uh, understanding of the complex complexities of, of the environment and I think also um, I think sorry <laughs> some music's just started in the background which I'm not entirely sure how that's happened um, um, it's really thrown me <laughs> um, I can't turn it off either it's not playing off my phone so I don't really know what's going on um, hang on we're going to have to sort that before pauses <laughs> Hey Siri, turn the music off. Yeah, yeah sorry, my wife's uh, drum and bass <laughs> from upstairs. 
talk to the speaker. I don't really know. I have no idea how it is. Yeah. I didn't feel like it was um, the right vibe for the conversation. <laughs> no. um, yeah. Uh, so anyway, so, we, you know, we, we've got this massive focus on, you know, what all of this, and it doesn't say it in as many words, but, you know, our, our government now is entirely driven towards natural capital, and they see that as being peatlands they see that as being woodlands you know we've got scottish forestry are still continuing to say that there's no scientific evidence not to plant trees on peat that's less than 50 centimeters total bullshit well it is and you know and and we've got so much science now that proves that that you know in that environment they're never going to take in they're never going to sequester enough carbon those trees are never going to make themselves carbon neutral because Mm -hmm. they cannot because disturbing that soil in inverted commas is so damaging we cannot get you know you can't get back from that in the life cycle of a tree particularly not if it's no. if they're talking about harvestable trees by the maybe just by the time it's become harvestable is at the point where it's neutralized its impact and then they're going to cut it down and then they're going to put a load of and then they're going to upturn all of that stuff again to be able to replant it yeah you know I, I, and i think that's I it want, I, think... I wonder why there's a lot it's either blatant ignorance or a lack of honesty because they have to know that there's doubt in this now. At the very but least, I th- there's but I, doubt. I think, I think they must. And I think at the same time, they're probably sitting there. They've got tree planting targets to retrieve. And where do you plant if you don't plant in the <clears> uplands? Well, you can't plant in the lowlands because the ground's worth too much. Yeah. So instead, you plant on ground that isn't worth anything at the moment, but we know is going to be worth an awful lot in the future if we listen to this natural capital discussion. Mm. And we are ruining it in the name of the environment when we've got science to prove that that's not the right thing to do in that environment. And I I really, I think we're at a stage, I had this conversation with someone just um, back end of this last year, where I think we're at a stage where there's no, you know, you did the Great British Uplands podcast, and I, I was a very small part of that. And I had a conversation off the back of that with someone about, you know, this fact that we're, we're you know, we're the sort of we are faced with this machine now. We 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 should have, and I. It it is our fault. We weren't there twenty years ago saying this. We just rolled over and hoped it'd go away, and now we're faced with, um, the fact that it's you know that the the Kool Aid has been drunk by even people in our own industry, stalking clients. You know, people people who would identify with. Uh, with that traditional upland land use, even those people are saying, "Well, yeah, if you if you take the deer away, then there's natural regeneration, and that's the right thing, and all this kind of stuff." Well, you know, I don't really understand how because just because a tree will grow there doesn't necessarily mean there should be a tree growing there. And I I don't really I don't think that conversation I I don't think there's even any point in having that conversation now because we're so far down this you know this this rabbit hole of the way that our um our upland management is and this kind of holier than thou you know natural capital rewilding um all of this uh you know kind of all, all of this new interest in the uplands let's call it that that has been grabbed by, in my opinion, in Scottish government, that has been taken by people who were bitter and angry that land reform didn't work. Mm. They and and it is a vehicle for that. Mm. Um, and I think and it's very hard to cases, say anything against it without being accused of, of 
you know, being a climate change denier or something yeah. like that. It's almost like, it. it's like speaking against the church a few hundred years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we are like full-on Spanish Inquisition level. Um, you know, I, I, and you just, like you say, what, what do you, what do we do? You know, well, with someone like myself and I say, you know, I'm a massive, I, I think riparian woodlands are really important. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think woodland cover is very important, but I also think there's, you know, the, the environment, that open range, um, you, moorland, montane land, whatever you want to, you know, however you want to describe it, that, 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 um, that vision of the highlands that we've had now in my opinion for a very long time but some people would tell you that you know magically the deer came and ate all the trees 300 years ago or whatever the fuck happened um but that landscape that you see out of my front window or any you know that part of scotland i think has a value that is beyond you know what can what can it be sold to aviva standard life for in terms of sequestering carbon. I mean, that that whole carbon market, and this is where land reforms, uh, you know, <laughs> it, th th there must be some people there who just never anticipated where this would go. The price of these, the value of this land for genuinely, in my opinion, greenwashing by big commercial entities, you know, building wind farms on, which I, I really question the, the scientific, you know, the the proof behind that being a long term sustainable thing to do, um, you know all of this sudden commercialization in the last fifteen years, 20, 10 years even, and the pace that that has ramped up it's in the quick. last three years, yeah, very quick, just astounding. And I don't think there's anybody, you know, I'm certainly not equipped in any way to kind of deal with that. I feel a bit like one of those cowboys. Sometimes you see in cowboy films that was like running away from trains and barbed wire. I was told recently that there's a there's a hiring freeze uh, on in Scottish government at the moment. I was told. Really? Yeah, but the only people that are actually allowed to hire at the moment are uh, Nature Scott are looking for wildlife operations people to implement what's going on. Uh, so, you know, so the this whole is like the, this is the most important. And that thing. ultimately, I think that's the fascinating thing. You know, we've got another consultation. We're going to have another round of change. We're going to have more. We've potentially got these deer management. Uh, nature restoration orders coming in and therefore you know they've already talked about funding and they're obviously going to have to have people to manage these things and you sit there going I wonder where the resource will come from you know for, for nature got to do that I wonder how much budget Scottish government I mean you know Forest and Land Scotland spends nine million pounds a year shooting deer on the public estate so you know I mean this isn't that this isn't going to be nature Scott people probably in the most part going out and shooting stuff at least, but it is going to take considerable resource. And you wonder, you know, the amount of money that's getting spent on all of this. I'm, I'm, I'm 90% sure that there's no, they won't be allocating any budget for further resource. So they won't be allocating budget to see, uh, sorry for further resource for further research. Mm -hmm. So they won't, you know, they'll be resourcing this funding for fences and killing stuff and, uh, but not to see the impact like on it. But ultimately, you know, long-term monitoring of trends. The only deer research that's going on on a big scale in Scotland at the moment is is rum, yeah. and that's done by the University of Edinburgh. And, and I don't think, I don't believe that's government-funded at all. I might be wrong, but it's certainly not like we're expanding. You know, we're, everybody's saying we've got to expand deer management. We've got to expand the amount of people involved. We've got to do all the stuff. But there's nobody saying, right? Okay, well, how much money are we going to put into the science of it? How much, you know? the feasibility you know to understand how to do this well because that's what annoys me is there's you know 
let's say this one of the things that annoys me i should say because it's it's growing a, it's this constantly growing list at the moment um you know let's say they legalize shooting with shotguns so they've just re- legalized shooting with night vision and thermal as far as i know they've had one best practice event um for doing it they didn't have a working group to draw up new best practice guidance that we can all be sent they had an event uh down at craig meggie um you know so shooting shot shooting deer with shotguns um uh, you know, are we going to have a whole new relaunch of best? Because we must have that. The night vision and thermal thing, I don't really want to talk about. The only thing that makes me laugh is they did this. They based this on a study uh, that they did, and they got a load of night vision, a load of thermal. They gave it to some people, and they went and shot stuff, and that's fine. And so we've made it legal because apparently there's no welfare concerns. But I, I did kind of roughly work out what the cost of the average, you know, the quality of the units they were using was good. They were they they did these tests with like relatively, you know, with with uh, good quality equipment. What I think is interesting is that it doesn't say you can use night vision thermal if you have like a minimum a min- spec. A minimum spec. <clears throat> so you could go on eBay and buy like the you know the the Ching Kwong Do thermal site from uh, Taiwan that is three hundred pounds mm-hmm. or seventy pounds. Yeah, and it is a thermal site or a night vision site. Uh, and so it's legal to use, and people can go and shoot deer with that. You know, you'll still need to put in a night license, but you, to do that, you need to get on the fit and competence register. So you need to have a level one and a reference, or a deer stalking level two. So it's not a very high level of training that's required for this anyway. And interestingly, a, a, a deer stalking level one or level two, as far as I'm aware, at no point is there any training of how to do this in the night. There never used to be anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know if it's changed. Um, so. It does kind of worry me that it's going to be a matter of time until there's like accidents start happening because people, you know, a farmer who's got to shoot deer in his silage park goes, oh, actually I can get a night vision scope to do that. Well, and I can get this one on eBay for like 12 quid. That'll be great. Puts it on and goes, oh yeah, look, I can see that deer shaped thing in the dark. Great. Wallop. And it ends up not being a, a deer shaped thing. I think... And I think that's the... You have to be very careful about that. Well, it, well exactly. I, I also and just I, had a thought about the shotgun side of it. That's going to have to be with steel. Now, when those original... Um, Is it? Well, well, I mean, we're moving away from lead with everything else, are, right? Yeah, that's so why wouldn't we it are, be with steel? We are moving away. Uh, yeah, so, and when those original... Um, so like you were saying earlier, the shotgun has always been... Uh, it has always been possible with the correct reasons to use mm. shotgun for, for... Was it all deer or just road deer? I think it was all deer. I thought it was for, all deer. For agricultural damage, yeah. But but when that would have been implemented, they would have been assuming, what, and I can't remember what the the minimum size was for it, but yeah. it would have been with lead. Would have been alpha max, wouldn't because, it, back in the day? <clears throat> because, it de- and it deformed. Like, we know that it yeah. deforms, which is how you end up with energy loss without going into a big technical yeah. um, ballistics chat with us, which everybody just stopped listening. Yeah. I wonder how much has been considered about the fact that for food chain stuff, in a lot of instances now, that would have to be with steel. Mm. I'd I, uh, be very curious to read and, and look at the detail of that because I wouldn't be surprised if they haven't thought about I that. I wonder if we could get copper shotgun. Because copper... Yeah, I guess you could like, use copper. And also, interestingly, so just, just to have... coated to 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 parallel To stravague slightly into a different realm of less misery and more boringness, but... Um, would a shotgun be better at shooting deer? So, so a copper bullet out of a rifle generally carries more penetration. It deforms less, it penetrates more. Would copper shotgun pellets 
penetrate more and deform less, and therefore would they be more lethal compared to a lead projectile on a bigger animal? Very curious question. I don't know because that could be you know because so so shooting deer with a shotgun is something that I can see. Like I was saying earlier, you know, I can see an I can see a a degree of using that, and and ultimately, you know, it's not that I'm necessarily against using night vision and thermal for shooting deer at night because if you're going to shoot deer at night the the quality of technology that exists now you know doing it with a lamp everybody was spotting you know the guys that were night shooting any quantity of deer before the legislation change in late 2023 those guys were all spotting in and i know a lot i know a lot of people that were doing that sort of work um they were spotting with thermal and they were shooting with Actually, in the most cases, not even roof lights from vehicles, but very high-powered torches on mounted the on the rifle. Yeah. Um, and they were shooting, you know, accurately to, to good distance. But obviously, there's the issue of other deer seeing the beam. And if you put the torch on something and don't shoot it, so you can make things lamp shy. Um, it was a logical step. I, I do agree to, to bring in the night vision and the thermal options to that. And part of the... Um, part of the... Uh, requirements to get a night license of any kind is that you have a dog available to track deer which I think is very important and I believe that this shotgun potential shotgun amendment to the deer act will also be on a fit and competent basis so you will again you'll have to have that minimal level of qualification you'll have to justify why you want to do it and that kind of stuff Um, it'll be really interesting to see how that works because a, a basis of shooting deer. I don't know anybody that's going out and shooting a deer and a shotgun anywhere in the world. You know, in um, in parts of America, it's quite common, uh, and in parts of the continent, it's quite common. I would mm. say that they drive, you know, especially road deer and stuff to shotguns. A lot, a lot of those on the continent, I'd say, are probably still using rifles to shoot driven. Yeah, in most instances, because it's part of bigger driving operations. Yeah, it probably is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think in Scandinavia there's a bit of you know shooting Maybe. with shotguns. I think there certainly is. I know in uh, like new in the state of New Jersey, I think it's New Jersey. You, the majority of deer shot are white-tailed deer, and they are generally shot with shotguns because the covers it's just so very thick, thick woodland. Yeah. Um, but again, all of that shooting deer with a shotgun ties in with working a dog to move those deer mm-hmm. i don't know anywhere where shotguns are being used for like any sort of stalking it doesn't work very well with do the, like it. we were saying with the new so again regulations look, yeah. on dogs so we're, we're we're in an interesting we're in an interesting time for all of this maybe we can kind of bring the deer discussion to a close by just considering for a moment the the kind of the end result of this is a dead deer and a carcass hanging up yeah um and that carcass goes, in most instances in this country, to a game dealer if it's not being processed where it's shot and consumed in some manner. Uh, but the vast majority go to a game dealer, which then ends up in places. There's already a lot of very disgruntled people about the price of venison um, for the person pulling the trigger, which is not great. You're not getting a hell of a lot for your money. If you start to increase that number, basic supply and demand would tell you that that has to be depressed even further than it is now. And yet we're not seeing any uptake in um, demand in the sh- as the consumer of venison. And we're also so not, seeing, not seeing a depression in the prices in the shops. No, I, the venison 
um, the venison marketing. I mean, I speaking to a friend of mine who's in Suffolk uh, just back in the last week. He he's getting ten pence a kilo for muntjac. Wow, um, is that just because they're kind of pain in the ass to no, process? I, I guess, um, or people don't want the meat. I'm not really sure, but that's that's what they're getting. Um, and Jesus. they, the, the, his game <clears throat> dealer totally stopped taking fallow deer just for what? Christmas. Just would not take any fallow. Um, so, the, 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 uh, and again, I think in England, you know, again in Scotland, we've we've got an industry. You know, the government wants us to shoot an extra hundred thousand deer a year. Okay. Um, but we've got a reasonable infrastructure for game dealers. We've got a lot of, there's a lot of good quality processing, you know, estates generally have a high quality of processing facility, certainly compared to the average land holding in England that shooting deer, I would say. Um, so we have a better supply chain. Uh, and I think probably if I'm absolutely honest with you, I bet Scottish venison sells better because people think Scotland, Monarch of the Glen, delicious venison. Um, but yeah, how we how the venison industry is going to cope with that extra quantity without any subsidy from the government, without um, you know any any further marketing budget or that yeah, that is a huge, massive, um, very thing little to do consideration with. has gone into and that. I don't think it has. I believe in this uh, consultation. I haven't read through it fully because we've been busy, but um, uh, th there is they are going to get rid of the game dealer's license. Really? Yeah, apparently so. To, mm. to ease up the legislative burden or something like that. I mean, <laughs> I mean that I'm not, I'm not for I'm not one for more regulation, but that seems like a really shit <laughs> yeah. idea. And it's also just like it's it's not going to you know like and you say uh, what 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 I think will work if you want people to shoot more deer is the government saying right okay well we're going to put a um we're going to put a like a levy on venison so we will make sure that it never drops below one pound fifty a and kilo. they will never do that or I mean or. What would be better than that, I think, would be support it as an incredible resource of the country, yeah. like we support whiskey, yeah, 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 and market it to the chuck, yeah, to the to world chuck, and to the rest of the country. Chuck the money into a marketing budget. Yeah, for, that yeah. would be smart because that's not just a play for today; that's a play for the future. That's very true. I think that, um, yeah, I think that's just. I, I think that's beyond anybody. No one in government that is making these decisions is actually listening to the industry enough to realize this. No. I, I genuinely don't think. Um, and, and that's such a shame. Well, Mr. Thompson, as always, uh, it's probably been a slightly more serious conversation than we've had in the past, um, but, a, yeah, but a good probably. one and a necessary one. I think your um, your young daughter might be calling your attention yeah, it sounds from like upstairs. So there's probably like a good, good, um, good time to call an end to this. But thank yeah, you so absolutely. much for your time. My pleasure. It's always lovely. And uh, yeah, we should sure. probably try not to live, as we say every time, we should try not to leave it as long. Well, at, at least once a year. Maybe maybe one day, because all those people that ask for us to do podcasts are all very boring people like us. <laughs> and maybe we should do like a short, really geeky one about guns and boring stuff. Yeah, we could do. People. We could do That'd like a fun. super technical one. Yeah. Uh, but right now I'm going to go See make a cup of, tea, drop a cup of tea and steal some of those chocolates. Wow, that sounds a great idea. Yeah, and then, I'm not, and then I've got another podcast to record today. <laughs> Spot on. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.